For the last 20 years, uh, these practices of meditation and cultivating wisdom and cultivating the heart have been at the center of my life. And for a good portion of, of every year, for a lot of those years, I've spent time in silent retreat, and that's been a really important part of my life. And yet, it's quite interesting because the question that burns in me the strongest these last years has actually been the question of how do we live the teachings in our lives? How do we take what we learn on the cushion and live them? You know, what does taking a mindful breath have to do with it is really is a question that's of increasing importance to me, and I also see increasing importance to you um, as, as a wider community, if not you personally. We're all making efforts uh, in these practices, or we wouldn't be here. There's so many other things we could be doing on a Thursday night, and yet here we are. Um, how do we live them? And so I want to talk about a topic that is a beautiful expression of how to live them this evening. And that's the topic of the teaching of the Brahma Viharas. And the word Brahma Vihara means divine abode. And I think about it as places that we would want our heart to live and places that we would want to live from in our hearts. So flavors like loving-kindness, compassion, joy, equanimity are all the flavors of this heart that lives in a divine place. So the Brahma Viharas are an expression of our wisdom. We can cultivate them directly, but we actually already have those qualities. And we do these practices to uncover them and nurture them because they're already there in our hearts. And for me, that was a very important insight to come to because when I came to meditation practice and I started when I was in my late teens, I was in pain. You know, and a lot of us come to practice because there's some pain or another because we're humans and living a life, there's pain. Um, I was in pain. I was in every level of pain from the social pains of just being that age. We can all remember back what that was like. Um, there was tremendous pain in my family life. Um, there was illness. All different kinds of uh, family crises that were visiting every day. I was also in physical pain due to a car accident that happened at that time that was a real wake-up call. You know, that first time in our lives when something occurs and all of a sudden we realize, you know, life is fleeting and it just passed before my eyes and that could have been the end right there and yet here I am. How do I want to live it? You know, the first time that happens to us. That was the first time it happened to me. And then also just the pain of having a human mind and heart and, you know, the the self-judgment, the never good enough, the inner competition, all of that. And so it was really important to come to the teachings and hear the wisdom side of the teachings that, oh, being a human being, living a life, there is stress, there is pain. I didn't do it wrong. You didn't do it wrong. This is part of the package. Um, that there are causes to this. 
that there's a way out of this, that peace can be possible with our lives as they are, not as we want them to be, but as they actually are. And that there are tools and there's a path. So that's the wisdom side. And when we drink in that wisdom more and more deeply over a life of practice, whether this is your very first meditation class or you've been doing it for 40 years, as we drink it in more and more deeply, what begins to manifest are the expressions of awakening. And the the expression of an awakened heart is loving kindness, well-wishing to self and to others. It is compassion, the heart that meets suffering in a healthy way. Um, It is joy and cultivating joy. Not just our own joys, but realizing that we're not separate and that if you have joy, I have joy. And the heart that's big enough to hold all those joys and sorrows, which is the heart of equanimity. And that's really been my path for the last 20 years. In a nutshell, it's really simple. Deepening investigation of those Four Noble Truths of the Wisdom side, and then opening layer by layer by layer of the heart. So I want to talk about these four. And for each of them, I'll use an image and talk about some of their qualities share a story about them, and maybe share a a practice or two that you could try on if you wanted to in your life. So metta, loving kindness. Traditional image for loving kindness is this. As the sun sheds its rays on all without distinction, so too the heart of loving-kindness sheds its well-wishing without distinction. So here we are in the middle of the winter. It's cold. And you can just imagine that metta sun. It doesn't say, oh, I won't shine my rays on you, or you, or you. It's without distinction, and it's warm, and it's friendly. And those are the qualities of metta. One quality that masquerades as metta but isn't actually loving-kindness is a a flavor of more selfish affection, saying, oh, I'll shine my rays of loving-kindness on you if fill-in-the-blank. You know, because we have an agenda. Why? Because we're trying to get things to go right. Why? Because we want to be happy. And then we can come back around full circle and realize, oh, I want to be happy. You want to be happy. May I be happy may you be happy. And the agenda can go out the window for 30 seconds until it arises with a vengeance again with a different person or a different object because that's how it is. You know, we all know that, being human. And the opposite of loving kindness is no surprise to us. It's, it's the heart of anger. It's the heart of pushing away, saying, I don't like you. I'm not holding you in my heart. Uh, aversion. I think it's fairly easy for us to embrace the idea of wanting to wish well to ourselves and to others. And then there's the question of actually wishing well when 
ourselves and others do what they do, which is, you know, we're not always, well, polite, as it were. So my most recent lesson about loving kindness happened in the last year, and most of this last year I spent living in Asia, spent living in Thailand and India and Nepal. And especially when I got to India, it was my first trip to India. And for those of you that have been, or maybe you've been to a different country and you will recognize this story because it's certainly not confined to India. In fact, uh, we can experience it on any street corner here in Berkeley. Walking down the street and this constant bombardment of you know, ma'am, pashmina, you want a pashmina today? Um, ma'am, over here, would you like some, you know, jade? It's, it's top notch. Or, you know, over here, oh, have some of this, have some of this. Pulling on me, you know, just this constant, do you want, do you want, do you want, can I have a little bit of your time? Walking down the streets uh, in a town in the Indian Himalaya, which is where I arrived. And my first response to all that, because it was a much higher level of um, interaction, the cultural sense of personal space is very different than it is in America. And so, you know, that was jarring, meaning that it's not uncommon to have a bunch of people, you know, hanging off your shirt while you're trying to walk down the street. And what I had to learn was with the loving-kindness practice was how to say no with a smile. Because I didn't actually need any of those things, and I didn't actually want any of those things, and yet there were these people, and here were these offerings, how to say no with a smile. So even if you never go to India your whole life, this question of how to say no with a smile and a well-wishing heart is relevant to all of us. Because we're constantly asked to do things and be things that we can't and that we won't. So at first, I just kind of tried to ignore them. Uh, but then I felt really disconnected. And then I tried saying, you know, no, 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 at least make a connection. But there was so much aversion. There was so much aversion in it. And I started thinking about really taking it on as a practice because it was every day, nonstop. I thought, well, you know, what is really being asked for here? Because I cannot buy all those pashminas. I can't, I can't do this. Um, you know, and the beggars. And how much is enough, you know, at the stoplight downtown? How much is enough? Is right now the right moment to give? How do we know when it's the right moment? And what I started learning about more and more deeply was it wasn't about whether I gave or not or whether I bought or not, but it was about the quality of attention uh, even when somebody was behaving in a way that was very jarring to me because they came out of a different context, could I still meet them with a smile and say, say no, sir, not today? You know, by the time I left, my last place that I visited was Kathmandu, Nepal. And walking down the main streets in Tamil there, um, it's just a constant bombardment. And it was a real lesson to me of what had been learned in six months because I was walking down the street and there might be a hundred people engaging me, trying to get me to do various things. And I'd say, oh, sir, have a great day. I hope you, you know, I hope you make a sale soon. Oh, not now. Maybe I'll come back later. Smiling, smiling, connecting, connecting. When I finished walking down that street, I felt full. My heart felt full. I felt connected. 
I really hoped that it worked out for them, even though I didn't buy any of it. Um, versus when I first arrived, I would finish walking down the street and I'd have to go home. I was exhausted because of the pushing away, pushing away, pushing away. Very different quality of heart. So there's your family member asking for that thing that you can't give them. And you can't give it to them now. It's like how to say no with a smile. Doesn't mean you have to smile. It's the quality of attention. You know, and we've all experienced this. And so an important part of the practice of learning to say no with a smile is, of course, working with our defensive systems, working with the parts of our minds and our hearts that say, no, I can't connect. I'm going to shut you out. And we all have our version of it, you know, from the concrete bunker of I can't connect with you, I can't feel anything in this moment, uh, to getting angry, to pulling away and disappearing. You know, and if it's a loved one, then they don't know where we've gone. We have so many different ways of coping. And those coping mechanisms are simply the ways that we learn to survive and to protect our hearts when we didn't have other tools. And then they became a habit, and then we live a whole life from them. What I love about mindfulness, or kind of the more wisdom investigative aspect, is it provides us with a choice to say, oh, I'm pulling away like I've pulled away a thousand times before. I see it. Might there be another way? You know, and in that moment, the possibilities are open. In that moment, we are following in the footsteps of Siddhartha. That was actually the question that he asked himself right before he went and sat under the Bodhi tree to get enlightened. He had tried all these practices, all the things that had been taught to him before, everything he thought might be a good idea. None of it was quite working. And he sat down and he thought, might there be another way? And inspiration arose, and the series of events that led him to the Bodhi tree came from that. So there we are with the family member in the same defensive response. Oh, I see it. Might there be another way? And it's very inspiring to look at the Buddha as a real person, you know, and that he offered loving kindness equally to his son, uh, to his cousin who tried to kill him. That's Devadatta, not Ananda, for those of you that know the story, to Ananda, who took care of him all those years. It didn't matter. It was that, those rays shining without distinction. Then there's compassion, the awakened heart that meets suffering openly. And I had another very powerful lesson about compassion during this trip in India. And it happened one month into the trip, and it happened 24 hours into a month-long retreat that I had begun. So I was 24 hours in at a monastery, and it was a self-retreat, so there weren't other people there except for my partner. And it started to rain. And Ladakh is in the Indian Himalaya. It's high Himalayan desert. It gets about three centimeters of precipitation a year. And it started to rain. I 
thought, hmm, that's odd. It doesn't rain here. It continued raining and raining the whole evening. And that night, um, the, uh, the worst flash flood that the area had experienced in over 100 years um, swept through and killed hundreds and hundreds of people. And the most deaths and the most damage happened a quarter mile from where I was staying in my kuti, my little re retreat cabin. And I woke up in the morning, and there was a new kind of creek running in front of my retreat cabin, but it was intact. Um, I was very lucky, very lucky. Uh, and down the hill, it was a very different story. And so there I was um, in the middle of a huge natural disaster. Uh, there was, we almost ran out of food. There was no water. There was nothing for a while. But more than that, you know, it was the deaths and the loss of homes and the loss of farmland in the local community and the bodies burning in the charnel ground just down the hill you know, all day. And I didn't know what to do. There I was in this retreat. I thought I should leave because I didn't want to be a burden on the local community. I didn't want to eat food that the children could eat. Um, I didn't want to be a burden. And yet all the roads were closed. They started flying out all the foreigners after a few days. And a few days after that, they were all gone. Um, so it was just locals and my partner and I. Uh, we hadn't signed in our passports, so they didn't know we were there. <laughs> and, you know, what do you do when the suffering is that huge? This is a big question. I mean, the areas of suffering on the planet right now, as always, are extreme. How do we keep our hearts open to that? You know, so there I was, and I went and I talked to the abbot, and I said, you know, I really, I think I should leave. Um, I think I'm, I'm a burden. And especially when the food was running out. And he, he said, no, Heather, he said, I'd really appreciate it if you stay. I said, really, why? He said, because there's, there's all these, there was these schools, and a lot of the monks and the nuns were young at this monastery. They were kids and teenagers. He said, you know, I've been telling the children about you that you are up there praying for them. Because I was, my partner and I were the only people that were practicing at that time. Everyone else was digging out bodies and dealing with what needed to be dealt with. And he says, really, really important that I be able to tell them that you're praying for them this month. Will you please stay and pray for us? We need your prayers. And so I stayed. Yeah. And what I learned from that was... Number one, the heart is bigger than we think. And I think that we learn that over and over again in our lives. It's like, can I handle this? No. And then we do. Can I handle this? No. And then we do. Amazing survival capacity of the heart. And then out of doing this compassion practice for a whole month and watching the bodies burn, you know, then when the month was over, an appropriate response could arise because I wasn't in trauma and I wasn't in panic and I wasn't bringing them my agenda of what I thought might be a good idea for them. 
you know, one thing the abbot said to me is, you know, we're real close. We're, we're, we've got our systems. We're, we're figuring this out. But we need your prayers. Um, so then I came out and... As, as was said, I, I work with children. I worked with the family program for 10 years at Spirit Rock. And so I went down and I worked with the children. Did assemblies. I went down and worked with them. We talked about our feelings. Um, I offered donations. Um, I've been talking about this since I, get ba- since I got back so that people know, can continue praying for this community. It's like the appropriate response arose out of the compassionate heart. You know, if I hadn't taken the time to allow that to open, I would have had a lot of bad ideas about how to respond. That would have come from a Western context that was not appropriate. So I feel like when we're watching the news and the heart starts to close, it's like, okay, turn it off. Feel our heart. We don't have to get every single piece of information in. We might miss one piece. It's okay. It's about the heart. You know, we all know that. But the news keeps grinding it out, and it's all based on drama, you know, because mostly our minds are addicted to drama. So it's presented to us that way. The image for compassion is a tree makes no distinction in the shade it provides. It provides shade for all. You know, this cooling shade the fires of the suffering. And when we get lost in what masquerades for compassion, which I definitely did during the situation, it's everything from pity to codependence. Pity is the heart that takes a step back and says, oh, I'm so sorry. It's not that there's anything wrong with it, but the heart has taken a step back and said, oh, I'm so sorry for you, as if you are different than me. That's all. And codependence is the opposite. It says, oh, you're in so much pain, and I'm so enmeshed in it that I can't even figure out where you end and I begin, and so we're just drowning in pain together. I definitely did that in Ladakh. I drowned. I drowned, you know? And then I came up for air and took a breath and said, oh, it's like this. There's tremendous suffering, and I just got caught. Can I continue opening? Can I continue sending those phrases of compassion? You know, one of the opposites of compassion besides anger and and ill will that others is a kind of numbness. And I felt that too during that time in Ladakh. You know, when we're meeting somebody else's suffering or our own and it turns into too much, the system by necessity, moves into numbness. says, oh, I I can't feel this anymore. I can't feel anything at all in this moment. And I love that line from Ruth Dennison, who's one of our Dharma elder teachers. She talked about this a lot. She'd say to her students, and she's German, so I always hear it in a German accent, which I'm not good at doing, but I still hear it that way. She she always say, oh, feel the numbness, darling. Feel the numbness. It's okay. Just feel the numbness, darling. You know? It's like, okay. We're sick. We're in pain. Or a family member is, a friend is. And we got a little too close. 
And the defensive mechanism kicked in, and there's the numbness. Okay, this too. That's not other than compassion. That's part of the breathing in and breathing out of compassion. The heart opens and it closes and it opens and it closes. You know, and we don't say that the out-breath is better than the in-breath. So I don't, can't really think about why we should think that the numbness is better or worse than the open heart. It's just in and out breath of the heart. I'll share with you my favorite phrases for compassion practice because a lot of people know phrases for loving kindness but not compassion. In formal practice of these Brahma Viharas, we use phrases of wishing. So it's directing the mind um, in the direction of caring. These are the phrases I like to use. I care. I care about this pain. Through the caring, may the pain be eased. And I love that last line. Through the caring, may the pain be eased. It doesn't say through a fix-it project, may the pain be eased. It's saying in this moment, can the caring be enough? Knowing that if we take this moment to care, we have so much more possibility for an appropriate response. So it's not saying no response. It's saying take that moment for caring. I really trained myself in that. When I meet pain in myself or in the world, the first thing that pops into my head are the words, oh, I care. I care. Because it reminds me what's going on underneath all the frenetic mind activity about the suffering that's going on. What's really going on is that I care. What's really going on is that you care, even when you're numb. So the sirens go by again. How many times a day do we hear a siren and get startled? Sirens are designed to startle us. So I'm talking about daily life possibilities for practice now. They're designed to startle us. There's this moment when we can say, oh, I care. Someone's life just completely changed, and I care. There's something about suffering that sets off a startle response in us. So if we can drop in something to settle us, then we can open. It's really important to notice when we get startled. Changing gears, moving into mudita, or joy. And of course I think of James the minute I say joy. How could we not? So mudita is sympathetic joy. It's a specific flavor of joy that is joy in the happiness of of others. I like to think of it also as joy in the happiness of all. Because when we say joy in the happiness of all, first of all, it includes us. And second of all, it becomes a whole being instead of you and you, and can I be happy about your joy? How about your joy? But you just got what I really wanted. Just happiness of all, general happiness of all. And an image for it is, I think, of a child, you know, who has something joyous happening. You know, their face just light up. 
I have to say, it, it also happens when we age, when we get much older. I see it a lot in, in children um, and, and those who are you know, lucky enough to reach the elder years. And there's something about those two stages of life that the face can just open in this huge smile that takes over the whole face and the whole body. That's mudita. Mudita can masquerade is this quality called exhilaration, which you would think, oh, isn't exhilaration joy? Absolutely. The reason why it masquerades is because exhilaration takes a slight step back again. We get a little caught up in our own excitement, and it separates us from the object of joy, whether it's you or it. or So it's a slight step back. Still wonderful, no problem. And no surprise that the opposite of this type of sympathetic joy is jealousy. It's the heart that says, there isn't, there isn't enough, and uh, I have to protect what's mine. And if you have it, then I might not be okay, so I can't be happy for you. I was reminded on my trip about how even though this is a universal quality, um, this piece about sympathetic joy and also about jealousy, it's also culturally based. One of the women that I became close to on my trip is um, from Tibet and came over the Himalayas about seven years ago on foot with what she had on her back. And after I got to know her for, for some weeks, she started sharing with me about her home village in Amdo, Tibet. And she hasn't been back. She probably will never be able to go back. But occasionally she gets messages from her village, and she was so excited because the girls in the school in her village had done very well on their test results. And it was the first time that this particular doing well had happened. And she was just overflowing with joy. And I commented on it. I said, Santen, you know, you, you just, I, I haven't seen you so happy all these weeks that I've known you. And, you know, this, this it didn't even happen to you, I said to her. She said, she kind of looked at me and said, well, of course. She said, you know, these are the girls in my village. She said, they were five years old when I left. Now they're, you know, 12, 13. They're growing up and they're succeeding and, and they're going to be able to do so well in their lives. And she's getting happier and happier. And I was just so happy for her and commenting on it. And she finally looked at me. She said, you know, Heather, in my village, when one person does well, the whole village does well. When one person does well, the whole village rejoices. And I just thought, yes. You know? And it's not just this village in Tibet. It's in Africa. It's in so many um, tribal cultures, villages. And I think a really good example in our culture here is for those of us who have children in our lives. You know, whether we're parents or step-parents or work with children, and how easy it is, just like Santen with these, the girls in the village, 
that when we have a child in our life and they do well, we're not thinking, oh, if they did well, uh, you know, there's not enough for me. We're rejoicing for them. And I had one teacher in Dharamsala who was talking about this, and she said, you know, for a mother or a father to open their heart to their child's happiness, um, if we can open our heart to one person's happiness that way, we can open our heart to everyone's happiness that way. We just do it one person at a time. It's a little humbling sitting here where James usually sits thinking of anything to say about joy practice. I almost want to ask you, what are your joy practices? Uh, Maybe we'll do that at the end. I'll just stop with the joy there and, and hear from you about what your joy practices are at the end. So that we have time to talk about upeka, or equanimity. So equanimity is the heart that is large enough, spacious enough, wise enough, balanced enough to hold the joys and sorrows of our lives. And my favorite image for Upeka right now is a modern day image. And it actually comes from the documentary, sort of a documentary film, The March of the Penguins. How many people saw that a few years ago, March of the Penguins, or know about it? I'll I'll give you the image. I just think it's the perfect image of equanimity. So the mothers lay, the mother penguins, emperor penguins, uh, lay their egg. So they've got this little egg that's going to turn into their, their baby, their loved one. And they leave it with the father penguins. And the father penguins, they have these little feet, and they put the egg on top of their feet and underneath their little tuft of fur, right? And this is Antarctica. Okay, it's freezing. I can't even imagine how freezing it is. The winds are so strong, I can't even imagine that either. And they stand there in a huddle of a couple hundred of them with their eggs, while the mothers walk, I think it was 76 miles, to the sea to go get food to come back and to feed the baby when the baby's born, if they don't get eaten by a sea lion. They make that trek, they come back, Um, The fathers stand there for three months while they do that. And the only time they move is to shift around a little bit to let the ones on the outside into the inside to stay warm. So equanimity has this caring quality. It says, yeah, it's open and spacious. The mothers might get eaten by a sea lion. The egg might break. Um, They might freeze to death. But it still cares enough that they move around to get the ones on the outside on the inside. That's the heart of equanimity. It says things are changing, they're uncertain, and they're still caring. And then if the mothers get back and the eggs hatch and all is well, then the fathers who have been fasting for three months walk 76 miles, hopefully don't get eaten by a sea lion, and finally eat. I mean, that's equanimity. (laughs) That's definitely parenting practice. You know, or taking care of our parents' practice. One quality that masquerades as equanimity is indifference, which is the heart that just says, um, well, to use another family metaphor, a youth metaphor, there's kind of this teen-ism. Uh, they go, whatever. 
you know, that's, that's the indifference quality of equanimity. It's the heart that says, oh, I, I, sh you know, I shouldn't care too much. I'll just be indifferent. And then uh, the opposite is the heart that's so attached that there can't be any spaciousness. And um, it can't hold the joys and sorrows of the world. The story I'll tell you about this is a story about family practice. And it's a story about one of my students. I had worked with him since he was 14 years old when he started meditating. He had sat a number of retreats by the time this story took place. I think he was about 19, maybe 20. And uh, he was on a retreat with me. And he came to me and said, you know, Heather, I'm having a terrible time with my dad. And I knew him really well. I knew that he and his dad were close. But he was having a terrible time. I said, really, what's going on? He said, well, you know, my dad's always getting in my way and, and always trying to make decisions for me. And he won't let me go my own way. And I'm in college now. And it's really stressful. I try to talk to him. He doesn't listen to me. And I'm listening. I'm listening. I'm smiling. He stops. He goes, why are you smiling? I said, well, you know, I mean, I can tell it's really stressful. He said, yeah, it's really stressful. Why are you smiling? Because I was smiling bigger and bigger. And I said, and now again, this is somebody that I knew very well. I wouldn't, I wouldn't just say this to any student. But I looked at him and I said, well, I'm smiling because it sounds like you're both playing your roles perfectly. He's playing the perfect role of a father of a young adult, and you're playing the perfect role of the young adult who just left home. He looked at me, he goes, no. <laughs> I said, yeah. And so we, we thought about it a little bit. I said, oh, it's okay, you don't have to believe me. You know, this practice is based on don't take my word for it, look and see for yourself. So he kind of thought about it for a little, we breathed with it for a little, he's kind of, well, maybe. I said, well, I said, you know, next time you interact with your dad, why don't you just say that to yourself? When it starts up again, that same old conversation, how many times have you had it in the last six months? He said, too many times to count. I said, why don't you just say that, that to yourself? Oh, I'm playing my role perfectly. Oh, he's playing his role perfectly. So he went off and he did it. And uh, he came back and he's like, oh, we're both playing our roles perfectly. <laughs> you know? And that's what we do. That's the heart of equanimity. Um, and it's a practice that actually I took on for myself after I offered it to him because I thought, oh, there's something to this. When we're in interpersonal relationships that are close, we're each playing our roles perfectly and everyone's playing out their habit patterns perfectly. Everyone's playing out their connection perfectly. Can we let me be me and you be you? It's not condoning actions. It's just seeing the whole picture of actions again with the intention of being able to have space for a more appropriate response. So it's not passive, but it's wise. So that's one little practice that I offer to you. And another one for equanimity, which is similar, is reflecting on relationships over time especially when there's a highly charged relationship with a boss or a friend or a partner, 
really seeing, oh, it's, it's very interesting to do this with partners, you know, when there's a big uh, struggle going on. You realize, oh, there was a period of time that I didn't even know this person existed on the planet. And I was moving around, functioning just fine, everything was okay, and then we met. Love. They were the love of my life. They were all I thought about, on and on and on. You know, and then two years later, oh, there's all this conflict. And it grows and it grows, and maybe the relationship is about to split apart or it feels that way, and it feels like it's been that way forever. But there it was, five years ago, 10 years ago, 25 years ago, depending on how long you've been with your partner, you didn't even know they existed and you were okay. You were in love. That passed. You survived the love, the being in love, the big honeymoon passing. Here's this big problem. Maybe it's going to work out. Maybe it's not going to work out. They may become your enemy, so-called. You know, They may become your difficult person. It may end. <laughs> it may work out. You may fall in love again. We don't know. But when we reflect, oh, there's enough space in our hearts for relationships to change. That means it gives us all room to grow. You know, whether it's our parents, our partners, our children, our friends, it gives us all room to grow in the same heart. Close this with reading, um, not the whole poem because it's quite long, but sections from Thich Nhat Hanh, and you may know this poem. It's called, Call Me By My True Names. And especially if you do know the poem, um, see if you can receive the poem as a meditation. Because there's the words, and the words touch our hearts. Um, They remind our hearts of what's possible. Don't say that I will depart tomorrow. Even today, I am still arriving. I am a mayfly in metamorphosis on the surface of the river, and I am the bird that swoops down to swallow the mayfly. I am a frog swimming happily in a clear water of a pond, and I am the grass snake that silently feeds itself on the frog. I am the child in Uganda, all skin and bones, my legs as thin as bamboo sticks, And I am the arms merchant selling deadly weapons to Uganda. I am the 12-year-old girl refugee on a small boat who throws herself into the ocean after being raped by a sea pirate. And I am the pirate, my heart not yet capable of seeing and loving. My joy is like spring, so warm it makes flowers bloom all over the earth. My pain is like a river of tears so vast it fills the four oceans. Please call me by my true names so I can hear all my cries and laughter at once, so I can see that my joy and pain are one. Please call me by my true names so I can wake up and the door of my heart could be left open, the door of compassion. Loving kindness, compassion, joy, 
equanimity. These are the expressions of an awakened heart. They live in all of us. We're simply here to uncover them and nurture them so that they can grow. So that is what I have to offer for your reflection. And thank you, as always, for the kindness of your attention. And I would like to know what you do to practice joy and or any other questions you have about the talk. And let's see if this mic is on. Test. Ah, it's on. Who is feeling bold and wants to share or ask a question? Thank you. And because I'm supposed to repeat it for the <laughs> recording, he said it was joyful to listen to the talk. Thank you so much for sharing. Nature brings great joy. How many people does nature bring great joy to as a refuge? Yeah. Yeah, it's okay if your hand wasn't up either. Life changes. <laughs> we're doing we're doing recording practice. <laughs> I was just gonna say my my best friend has a, a two year old, almost three. And there's something about just being with her where there's nothing intellectual about it. It's just this complete silly goofiness and where we really let go. And, and I feel like we really experience, you know, just a real joyful playfulness with her. And so being around small children and just letting loose and playing, I think is really joyful for me. Mm-hmm. Thank you. We're adding yoga and dance. <laughs> yeah, I see people nodding. Um, I've done a lot of work um, doing group facilitation, working with um, men and women in uh, somewhat artistic therapeutic settings, and I find that um, witnessing other people's vulnerability and their aha moments um, has been incredibly joyful for me that I find myself thinking, I can't believe I get paid to do this. <laughs> but, like, I would do it if I wasn't getting paid. And and then that just elicits, like, my own response joy, or my joy response, which um, just seems to, like, there's a, a reciprocity. Mm-hmm. and um, But just witnessing people opening, and their hearts really um, unfolding is so beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, and that reciprocity quality, you know, it's just a circle. You actually made a circle with your hand. I'm saying it because there's lots of people. and It does. It keeps feeding us, and then we give it out, and it feeds us. 
Thank you. What practice do you all have about, we'll hear you first, but what practice do you all have about saying no with a smile? I'd love to hear some of those or any questions about that, but first we want to hear a joy practice one more. I used to do yoga and um, try to put a lot of effort into keeping my cat out of the room or meditation as well. And now he just, he's yoga kitty. He just comes in and just, um, you know, rubs up against me, stretches, lies down right in the middle when I'm about to do, you know, a pose. He's in my way and it's just become this playful, wonderful practice. I get so much joy out of it. And I thought all these years I was just, you know, trying to be the serious, concentrated, you know, yoga practitioner, and same with meditation, it just, um, he'll just curl up in my lap, and I'm like, this is so much better, just opening to it, and so anyway. (laughs) I mean, that's a great example. It's like from the heart that's trying to make it a certain way, and to the heart that's just allowing, here's my cat, he's getting in the way of my yoga posture. That's an interesting question. The, The transformation in the mind between something getting in our way or not, that's a really interesting place to investigate. Saying yes, saying yes to everything and just yeah, it's finally this, it's I get this, it, you know. Yeah, it's the same action. One was getting in your way, one is like connecting. Same thing. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for bringing that in. There's somebody uh, behind you a few rows. Yeah, um... About 10 years ago, I made a bad mistake when I made a right-hand turn on Carlton Street, and there was a bicycle. And the bicycle hit the back of my car. I didn't know it at the time, and I drove another 60 feet back to my house. And I was going up the stairs, and this burly 19-year-old followed me with his fists clenched about to pummel me and and some part of me I don't know where it came from but some part of me became more concerned with his his knee was scraped and I said to him you know I can go in and get some band-aids and it, it only surprised me when I looked back in retrospect that 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 comment just took all the <clears throat> air out of his sails and his fists unclenched and he said no no i don't i don't need any band-aids but that was basically the end of the confrontation and i <clears throat> it's just interesting how some part of yourself reacts in a in a spontaneous way that is much more sensible than to meet his anger with your anger. Yeah. Yeah, thank you so much for that story. It's powerful. Hmm. Anybody else? I get a lot of joy from making pie <laughs> and watching people eat it. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> oh, 
Thank you. Maybe one last one up front here. Um, I, I wanted to thank you for raising the issue of how you receive people's wanting, especially on the street mm -hmm. when there's that protective reaction. Um, and, you know, I've certainly practiced the street smart ignoring um, but I, I think I think it's beautiful what you described and I, I relate to that um, and that I've thought a lot about where those people are coming from and what their experience is and r really wanting to give something that's more meaningful than money um, which I often don't have to give anyways or um, and making eye contact, making eye contact, and when I can, you know, beyond smiling, wishing them, like you said, you know, the meta, but even, you know, I hope you have a wonderful evening or good, good luck or whatever it is, if it can come from a place of really when I'm really able to feel that and connect with them and make eye contact, it's amazing the way that people have received that. Uh, and there, there can often be, you know, I've received, I hope you have a wonderful, or God bless you, you know, that kind of, that connection that's really nurturing. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for sharing, and, you know, thanks for your ongoing um, caring and investigation, because like you said, it's not simple. We have to be street smart, and, like, there's a lot of space between being 100% shut down, street smart, and 100% open, getting wiped out. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Okay. That is the end of our collective reflection. It's always nice to have a collective reflection. And we will end the evening with a bit of formal practice of what we've been discussing. Taking a few deeper breaths and breathing in and out of the space of the heart, in the back of the heart. bringing a caring attention to the heart space. Each time we breathe in, we can breathe in the spirit of well-wishing towards ourselves. On your next in-breath, you might wish yourself happiness. On another in-breath, safety. Strength. Ease. We can even wish well to the part of ourself 
that doesn't feel we deserve it or that can't feel it. And on the exhale, we can begin to send these same wishes out to everyone in this room. On the next exhale, wishing for happiness, safety, strength, ease. And I invite you to say the first name of anybody in your immediate circle that could use a little bit of extra while wishing tonight. You just say their first name out loud. And we can carry all of those in that circle in our hearts, whether we know them or not. We know that they're connected to someone sitting here and that they care and that we care. And as we continue breathing out, send those well wishes in widening circles, radiating out in front of us, behind us, to either side, above and below, every time we breathe out, breathing out these wishes of kindness, happiness, peace. to a world that, as always, is very much in need of these wishes. We send these wishes now from our hearts, knowing that as we get up in a moment and move out onto the street, into our lives, that we are sharing these wishes and the goodness of our practice with everyone we meet. They need not know what they are receiving. We still share it, the goodness of our practice. Thank you for your practice. Have a wonderful evening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.